Please take your copies of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We've been in a series of sermons through Matthew's Gospel. We come this morning to consider verses 13 through 16 of Matthew 5. We're in a subsection of the gospel we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But I remind you part of a larger series we've been doing in this gospel. Let's begin to read in verse 10. Please follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 10 through 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And now the verses I'd like us to consider this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your... Our Father in heaven, we would be so glad and so thankful if you would come now through preaching to minister to us, to speak to us, to instruct us, maybe for some to convict us of sin, to call us back to your Son and to His way. Please come through preaching and do your work within us. We pray that your Spirit would have free reign in our hearts, that every hindrance and obstacle would be removed or overcome by His power. And may you please, Father, Work good for each one, that your word preached. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, the sermon uh, in the middle of our worship gatherings uh, usually gets the most amount of time. Uh, In many ways, uh, the service builds toward uh, the preaching of the word, uh, toward the sermon. And uh, there's a number of reasons why we do this. One of the reasons is because of what we believe preaching to be. Uh, The Apostle Peter said that him who speaks is to speak as the oracles of God, to speak God's very Word. And so we believe it's appropriate that if that's what preaching is, uh, as though God Himself is speaking to us through preaching, uh, then it should get a certain weight and a certain place of prominence in the gathering of God's people as He now comes to speak to us by His Word. The method of preaching that we have um, prized and pursued here in our own local church is what might be called expositional preaching. That's a big churchy kind of phrase. What does that mean, expositional preaching? Well, it basically means we seek in our gatherings week by week when we come to the Bible uh, to expound the Bible, to open up the meaning of the passages of Scripture that are before us, and to seek to make the meaning of the passage of Scripture the main point or message of the sermon itself. And so that is the method we pursue even now. We've been in a series of sermons through Matthew's gospel, and my goal week by week is to expound Matthew's gospel, to arrive at a new passage, a new text, and open it up for us for our edification and our building up. Now, a perennial challenge with expositional preaching, and something that preachers will often talk about, is uh, how fast to go through books of the Bible and how much text to take at a given time. I think by contemporary standards, we go rather slowly uh, through books of the Bible, Uh, but uh, by older standards, that would not be the case. My own pastor growing up, not Robert Fisher, who's among us, but another pastor, uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount over the course of about three or four years. I don't plan to take that long in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, But it's hard to know how, how, how much text to take at any given time. One of the dangers I fear in taking very small portions of text, as I've done the last several weeks, is that you could, what does the old proverb say, you could miss the forest for the trees, right? What does that that proverb mean? You could miss the big picture 
by zeroing in too atomistically on some of the details. Uh, I hope that you will agree with me, though, uh, in the Beatitudes, we have such trees that they need to be examined a little more closely. Well, now uh, I begin to open up to more verses than just one verse week by week, and that's not because these verses are any less important. But I want us to pick up the pace here now as we arrive at Matthew 5.13 as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm concerned, as we have spent so much time in the Beatitudes, that we not lose the big picture of what we're seeing in Matthew's gospel. I want to remind you of where we've been and what Matthew is trying to do as he reveals the person of Jesus Christ to us. He begins in chapter 1 uh, with kind of an electric kind of beginning as the curtain draws quite dramatically. He gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Now, that may not seem dramatic to us if we're not familiar with the Old Testament, but if you know the promises and the prophecies that were made to Abraham and to David, well, then the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew could hardly open in a more exciting and dramatic kind of way. The longed-for son of Abraham has come, the seed of Abraham who will bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. He has now come in this man, Jesus Christ. The son of David is here, that great king over Israel. It was promised in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 19 that there would come a son from David's line. And this son would indeed reign forever over all the peoples of the world, that God would establish his throne in righteousness and in justice and in peace and shalom. And what is Matthew telling us? He's signaling to probably a largely Jewish audience That son of David is this man, Jesus Christ. And so we're told the line is then stretched back all the way to Abraham, and we're told how it is that Jesus is from that particular line. And then we have the narrative of Jesus' birth, and we're told that his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this Matthew is doing to show us that Jesus is everything the Old Testament anticipated. He is everything the Old Testament expected and looked forward to, and that continues into chapter 2. Many of the events in Jesus' early childhood are attached to and associated with various Old Testament passages and types and figures and texts that anticipated the very thing going on in Jesus' life. Well, then when we get to Matthew 3, the drama continues. Who do we see at the start of Matthew 3? We see John the Baptist. Who was John? He's identified with that great voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That great forerunner who the Lord had told us in days gone by who would come to announce the coming of the Christ. When he would finally come, there would be this one who comes before. He would be like a voice crying in the wilderness. And that's, of course, figurative and in John's case, actually literal. He was in the wilderness. And he's crying out the Christ is coming and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then at the end of Matthew 3, what happens? Jesus comes forth to be baptized by John. And in that, we consider that there's this great thing happening, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism and anointing him. Here is the Christ. He has the seal of the Spirit of God. He receives baptism from John as a kind of commissioning for his ministry. He has the anointing and the approval of God himself. And the voice is heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then as we go into chapter 4, uh, a narrative that maybe we've heard preached many times, but maybe have not perfectly understood. Uh, we have the temptation narrative. Jesus immediately is led up by the Spirit immediately after baptism into the wilderness. What's he doing there? Well, he is succeeding where Adam himself had failed. The new man has come, and he will triumph over Satan. He will withstand temptation, and he will have the victory over Satan in a way the first Adam did not. We see Jesus fulfilling what the Old Testament anticipated again. The new Adam has come. Where Israel failed, he will not fail. The new son is here. And he begins to exercise his dominion over Satan and all the forces of darkness. Well, then we read that he has come as light into the world. We read in the latter parts of chapter 4 that he himself begins to preach in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preaches that gospel that sinners might be saved and become members of the kingdom. And then he starts healing diseases, showing forth the power of the kingdom. A sick are brought to him, and here now the Christ has come, and he's calling men and women into this kingdom, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's showing the power of the kingdom and healing all their diseases, and they're bringing the sick to him. It's quite an exciting picture we have in the first four chapters. Well, then in chapter 5, we arrive to where we are in the narrative, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He stands up on the mountain. I imagine the picture is as though his disciples, who he has called, are before him, 
And the crowds are sort of forming an outer circle, listening in on the sermon that is preached. And in this sermon, we learn very quickly that Jesus is giving us the principles and precepts of his kingdom. This is where Jesus is going to announce what his kingdom will be like and how citizens of the kingdom must live. Jesus is not telling us how to enter the kingdom. He told us that in his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom to repent. Now he's telling us what life in the kingdom will look like. Now there were probably all sorts of incorrect notions about what that kingdom was going to be like. And, And chief among the misunderstandings and misapprehensions among his audience, I think, is that his kingdom would come in very short compass, in weeks, months, years maybe, his kingdom would come to dominate the whole world. That here the Christ has finally come. Here the king is here, the son of David. And his kingdom now, here he gives his kingdom manifesto. Surely now is the time where he will announce his victory and dominance over the kingdoms of this world. But very quickly what we learn is that this kingdom apparently is going to exist at least in its first iteration alongside the kingdoms of this world. It's going to exist within this world. And it's not going to be marked by its dominance and triumph over all the other kingdoms of this world, at least in the immediate. One day it will be. But at least in the immediate, oh no, Jesus is preparing his disciples for how to live in a hostile world. And the virtues that Jesus commends are hardly what many in his audience would have expected. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers. Then he says, the text we considered last time in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And maybe some of his disciples are thinking, I thought we were done with all the persecution. Like the prophets, they were persecuted, sure, but this is the kingdom, right? No, what we're beginning to see is that it's not Jesus' will in the first instance that his disciples would triumph by the sword and take over those who are over them, but rather this kingdom that he's preaching is going to exist and permeate this fallen and dark world. It's going to exist alongside the kingdoms of this world. And that never becomes more clear than it does in our passage this morning. Verses 13 through 16. I'll read these verses again for us and we'll consider them. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's how I'd like us to open up this passage this morning. Let's look at the two images that Jesus uses to describe his kingdom and his community of disciples, and then I'd like us to consider three implications for us or three lessons for us from this passage. So point number one, let's consider the first image that Jesus gives to describe his kingdom, his disciples. He says, point number one, you, you plural, you all, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now that phrase, salt of the earth, that's kind of a familiar phrase in English parlance. We'll use that terminology sometimes. We might say that of some, we might say, oh, you know, Jane, she's great. She's the salt of the earth. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase used in that way. Well, that idiom has its origin here. That's where that phrase comes from, as many other phrases in English. They come from the Sermon on the Mount and, of course, from the King James Bible. But this phrase, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus, as far as we know, was the first one to say it. He invented the idiom. He's not using some old phrase that people used in those days. He's inventing a new phrase, and he invents it with reference to his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now think, if you've never heard that phrase before, that's a kind of odd phrase. You are the salt of the earth. Again, we're used to hearing that phrase. Maybe even now as I say it, you're thinking, yeah, I don't understand what that phrase means, even though I've heard it many times. I don't know what that's getting after. He says, you're the salt of the earth. What's the meaning behind that phrase? Uh, Well, we use salt in our own context today primarily for like seasoning. 
I think of flavor to certain food. Take a bite of your food and doesn't have enough salt, so you put some salt on it. That sort of brings out the flavor. Uh, you know, the McDonald's French fries, you know, what makes them so good. They have like the perfect combination of salt and the way it congeals with the oil and the fryer and, you know, you need that salt, right? It, it, it seasons the food. It makes the fries, you know, what it is. So now you're all going to think about McDonald's French fries for the next hour of the sermon. Um, that was a mistake. But we use salt as seasoning, right? Uh, well, I don't think that's the way Jesus is using the phrase here. He's not saying of his disciples, you know, the world is so bland and flavorless and insipid, but the Christians really add the spice. They add the flavor to this world. You know, the, 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 the world is boring, but you put some salt, you put the Christians in there, and it really brings some life to the whole affair. I don't think that's the way the phrase is being used. Uh, salt, of course, is associated with bitterness. Salt is bitter to the taste. It's not sweet. It's bitter. Uh, but I don't think that is the idea here either. You're the salt of the earth and that Christians will be bitter and sour and long-faced and lugubrious and they'll walk around like the glasses always have empty. I don't think that's the idea either and I hope that much is obvious. In this case, it would help us to know something about the ancient world. This is a place where I think a knowledge of history can really help us in understanding the Bible. What was salt used for in the ancient world? What was its primary use? It was used primarily as a preservative. It was used to preserve foods, especially meats. You didn't have like a refrigerator. You buy a nice cut of meat and you want to preserve that meat. You're not going to have it right now. What do you do with it if you don't have a refrigerator or a freezer? Uh, you can't go to the grocery store and just kind of where they have stocked. You know, they're in the cold section. You know, at, at Costco, you walk into that freezer room where everything needs to be kept cold is in there. They didn't have that in Jesus' day. So they used salt as a preservative. You would rub salt into the meat and it would preserve the meat. It would allow it to endure and to last and to be preserved. I think that's the primary way in which Jesus is using this language. That's the primary idea behind that reference to salt. Very simply, Jesus is saying, in this sense, his disciples are the salt of the earth, meaning, I think, his disciples are to have a preservative kind of effect on society. A preservative kind of effect on the world, on the culture, and on their community. Christians, Christ followers, though a minority in the world, nonetheless, they're to have the effect of moderating and checking the world's moral decay. Well, they have the effect of making the world a better place and impeding the world's slide into moral degradation and ruin. The influence of the Christian community in this world is to have a preservative effect. To have a presence in the world that will halt or at least slow down this world's decay and deterioration. I think that's the simple way the image is being used here. The way salt is used to preserve meat, Christians though a minority, they will have a preservative and sanctifying effect on the wider society, which, if you'll notice, says something both about the world and something about the Christian, doesn't it? The natural state of things in the world is moral decay and deterioration. Like, that's the course of things. Always surprising to find Christians who are in some way shocked or surprised at moral decay in the world. Friends, that's the course of things. Just look at the first book of the Bible. And how long did it take to get from creation to fall? And how long did it take to get from the fall to the situation with Noah? In Genesis 6, where the Lord looks on humanity and all the thoughts of man's heart are only evil continually. And how long after that before we get to the Tower of Babel? And how far after that before we get to Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, this is the story. Often there is destruction and then there's kind of a new start that looks promising and then it deteriorates and decays. That's the course of things in this world. It's the course of many nations that rise and fall. The natural course of things in this world is moral decay and deterioration and ruin. That's what this image reveals about the world. The world needs a preservative, lest it slide into ruin. But now for the Christian and for the Christian community, the disciples of Jesus, this image reveals that by our righteous lives, by our godliness, by our obedience to Christ and to the Sermon on the Mount, we will exert a positive influence on the world. We, the Christians, will exert a preservative influence on the world. We're understood to be the salt that impedes decay 
We're the source for good and preservation in the world. Christians in this world have the effect of moderating the culture's worldliness and sinfulness and moral decay. By our righteous lives, by our Christ-like virtue, by living out the Beatitudes, we influence the world for good. And this occurs, friends, in very practical ways and in very practical places. Christians are to have a preservative effect in their families. Uh, where perhaps many among the family are lost. They're in this dark world. They don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You put a Christian in that family, and there's a, an effect of preservation and good and healing and making whole that that Christian can have. It's this way in businesses. It's this way in classrooms. It's this way in all kinds of spheres. In very practical ways, Christians are to come as an influence for good and blessing and peace and wholeness and light, and salt. The world is a bad place, and it is deteriorating into moral decay. But Christians are supposed to be the source of good in this world. They are the salt working against decay. At least that's how it's supposed to work. That's where Jesus goes next. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, like if the salt has lost its properties, the salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, if salt loses its taste, its makeup, its properties, if salt is no longer salty, well, it's not good for anything. You might as well throw it out. It certainly won't do any good in the world. In other words, if Christ's people are not marked by the Beatitudes by obedience to Christ, by righteousness, what good are we to the world? That's how the image is working. It's quite a statement. If we as God's people are not righteous by the way we live, if we're not marked by these beatitudes that Jesus has spoken to us, well, what good are we to the world? Will we have that kind of preserving kind of effect we ought to have where we permeate the culture and bring good and blessing and preservation where we impede moral decay and moral deterioration in our families, in our communities, in the wider world. If we lose our properties as Christians, namely the grace of God working through us to make us righteous, well then what good are we in this world? No, we're to be the salt of the earth. By our righteous lives, we're to impose good upon the world. That's how I think the first image works. You are the salt of the earth. Let's move now to the second image. What's the second image Jesus uses. Both these images driving at one main point. The second image is this, you are the light of the world. Looking at his disciples before him, you are the light of the world. That's the image. That's the metaphor. You are like light in a dark world. And again, we understand something about the world and something about Christ's followers. The world is understood to be what? A dark place. It is characterized by darkness, by sin, by moral decay and moral ruin. But Christ's followers, Jesus says, are this world's light. Now think of this. Jesus has a small little band of followers at this point. Here are these men sitting before him. What a statement. He tells them, this is a dark world. It's a black world. This world is covered over with sin and the effects of the fall. This is a dark world. But you men, you my followers, you are this world's light. You are the light of the world. Not Socrates, not Plato, not Aristotle, all who had lived a few hundred years before this. Uh, not the mystics and the sophists, not the Pharisees. You, my disciples, my followers, those who have been born again by my spirit, who have repented of their sins, trusted in me, who follow me. You are the light of this dark world. What effect would that have had on those men? Like little old me? Like the few of us? We're going to be the light of the world? John Stott says this, incredible as it may sound, Jesus referred to that handful of Palestinian peasants as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, so far-reaching was their influence to be. It is also, Stott says, a remarkable providence of God that in this most Jewish of the four Gospels, there should be such an allusion to the whole earth, 
to the worldwide power for good of Christ's followers. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are this world's light. And then Jesus gives two examples of how light is meant to function, uses that it has in kind of our everyday lives. He says, first at the end of verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You're the light of the world, and don't you know a city set on a hill cannot be hidden? Now, I don't think that we understand this probably in our own context as we should. Again, some knowledge of ancient history will help us here. In our world today, this whole country is lit up by cities everywhere. There's hardly anywhere you could go in our county where you would just see like total pitch black darkness. You ever been in settings like that, maybe on a camping trip or something like that, where it's so dark you can't even see the hand in front of your face? Well, there's probably nowhere in Winston-Salem you could go. Maybe where our intern Johnny uh, lives, way out in the boondocks there in King, perhaps out there, brother, uh, there's something like that. But here in the city, you're very unlikely to see that. Now, now, in the ancient world, this kind of darkness was everywhere, everywhere. But you would be in the desert, and all of a sudden, perhaps tonight, you could see off in the distance light kind of emanating. And that light would be coming from a city that's lit up. It would be a light in a dark place. You would see a city set on a hill, and there would be light. You've been walking in this desert, you've been walking in darkness, but, but a light was an indication that I must be near a city, a city that's set on a hill. That's how the image is being used, describing the community of the Lord's disciples. You'll be like a city. This world is dark, but where there are gatherings of disciples, my people, there is a city set on a hill. Now, it might be worthwhile to note the obvious just given uh, the history of this country. Uh, you know the Pilgrim Fathers, the Puritans who, who, who came over here and founded uh, this country. Uh, as I study the origins of this country, I find a lot that's admirable. One thing that's not admirable is the way the pilgrims employed this text to describe the founding of this country. Because you understand in this text, Jesus is not referring to nations and governments of mixed, regenerate, unregenerate people. No, the city on a hill is like churches, the communities of the Lord's disciples. He's not referring to like Christian nations. This isn't like Christian nationalism that a lot of people debate today. The city set on a hill is not a government uh, in the worldly sense. No, it's embassies of the kingdom of God constituted in local churches where communities of the Lord's people come together in this dark world. The churches are the cities that are set on the hill, not, you know, the American nation or something like that. Now, the city set on the hill is going to be these men, wherever they go in dark places. I spoke this week with a group of pastors in a closed country in the Far East. We did this over Zoom, and um, their government is very hostile to Christianity. But those pastors in their churches are pastoring cities set on a hill. They are the embodiment of this passage. Their government may not bow the knee to Jesus, but wherever communities of disciples are who bow the knee to Jesus, there you have the bright and shining light in a dark world. That's the first sort of image or use of light that is acknowledged here. The second, we read, you are the light of the world, and he says in verse 15, a city set on a hill can't be hidden, verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So we turn on our lamps, they would light the lamp, and they'd put it on a stand. And he's saying, you don't put a basket or a blanket over a lamp after you've lighted it. Now, in, in every marriage, I trust you know, spouses will fight with one another, uh, argue with one another at times. Uh, some, some marriages, too, just have these kind of micro-tensions that exist throughout their whole marriage. They're always there, kind of under the surface. One such micro-tension in my own marriage is our, mine and Jenna's attitude toward lamps in our house. I want as many lamps as possible, and I want them all on all the time. Jenna, artist that she is, is trying to get the mood right. She loves a dimmer switch and lighting maybe one lamp here, not that one, but if we do this one over here, we have the right mix of light. And we do in our own context, they wouldn't have had this in those days. We have dimmer switches, you could kind of turn it up and down. Now, regardless of your philosophy to it, you use lamps in your house, you don't turn a lamp on for any reason other than to illuminate the room. Whether you like the light dimmer or brighter, the point of the lamp is to shine. No one lights a lamp and then covers it. That would make no sense. You lit the lamp to fill the room with 
light, and I would say bright light, and honey, I'd say, I have the Bible on my side, you see, that the light's meant to shine. You're using a very common household phrase. Light is meant to shine and to fill up the house. And what's the material point? Light is meant to be manifest. It's meant to be visible. It's meant to be seen. It's not meant to be hidden. If I say you are the light of the world, you're to function like a lamp in a dark room. You're to shine. You're to be seen. You're to illuminate. That's how Jesus is using the language. So he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Like a city set on a hill in a dark desert. Like a lamp that gives light to the whole house. It's a striking image, isn't it? He's saying you are different from the world. The world is darkness. But you are the world's light. The world's like a darkened room. It's like a dark desert or wilderness. And then there's the city that shines. It's the dark room where you would, if you couldn't see in front of you, you'd trip, you'd fall, you'd stumble. But then there's this lamp that shines and it illuminates the whole room. That's what these disciples are to be like. Jesus' practical point then is this, with these two images. Salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. As the light, you are to shine. Your witness in this world is meant to be for the public good of the whole world. You're not to hide or to withdraw. You're to shine brilliantly in the midst of a dark world. And what is the light with which Christians are to shine according to this passage? In verse 16, we see it. What is the light? It is that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the light? According to this passage, it is the good works of Christians. Here it's not narrowly or only the preaching of the gospel, though that is vital and emphasized in other places. Here the emphasis is on our good works as the Lord's people. The emphasis is on our obedience, on our living in accord with the Beatitudes, on our positive righteousness, on our good works rendered in obedience to Christ for the good of others. That's the light, our Christian conduct that manifests itself in attachment to Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' practical point with these images. Christian, your righteousness lived out publicly in this world, in real situations, in real relationships, in public context, is like salt rubbed into decaying meat. It preserves, it permeates situations and relationships and communities for their good. Your righteousness, your good works, your commitment to live out the Beatitudes in public is like light shining in the world. It lights up the darkness. It shines against the backdrop of sin and evil and moral decay all around you. And Jesus says this will become part of our public witness in the world. My kingdom will exist in a hostile world, in a dark world, but it will puncture the darkness. It will light up the darkness. It will stop the decay wherever it goes. People will see our good works as Christians. They'll see that we're different. They'll see something bright and wholesome and good and righteous. And just as some will persecute us for righteousness sake, as verse 10 tells us, some will be won by our righteousness. Some by the attracting light of the good works and holiness and righteousness and obedience and The life lived in accord with the Beatitudes, they'll see something bright and attractive, and it will win some. They will see our good works. They're like, why are you so different? What has made you so? And it will attract them, and they will be saved. They'll believe on the Lord Jesus. They will come to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. They will be drawn to Christ and to Christianity through our public witness as a display of practical good works of benevolence and charity and love and kindness and in very practical ways. I guess the backdrop of so much divorce, separation of families, families that are fractured, here's this Christian marriage and it shines. Husband and wife acting as they should in Christ, loving one another from the heart and it's this bright light in the family. Christian families, organized not on the terms of selfishness and quid pro quo, what can I get from you, but truly loving one another from the heart. Christians who are organized into various communities, Bible studies and neighborhoods, and certainly in local churches. They see Christians caring for one another, laying down their lives for one another, and living in humility and meekness and love toward one another. It's different, it's bright, it's attractive. 
I didn't have anything like that in my life. It's been wonderful to see recently so many in our church who have been serving my family, uh, sacrificing in practical ways to benefit the Depremas, and how that has stood out to relatives and people outside of Christ. Like, I had no idea there were places where people did that for people. It's extraordinary. It's remarkable. It's the effect of this passage. It's light shining in a dark world. Well, these are the images that are used. Salt of the earth, light of the world. The practical point is that our good works will be a display to the world and become part of our public witness. Let's consider now in the time that remains three implications for us from this passage. Three implications from, for us or lessons that we could learn from this passage. And my purpose here is just to augment and emphasize a few things for us here at Emmanuel Church to help us as we seek to live this out faithfully. Implication number one. This passage clearly teaches that there is a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. This passage teaches that there is a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians, between the church and the world. Jesus makes plain in this text that there is a difference between we who are followers of Christ and those who reject Christ. And brothers and sisters, we should embrace this, not in a high-handed a holier-than-thou, sanctimonious kind of way, but in an honest, sincere, humble, and biblical way. The fact of the matter is the Bible introduces the most radical distinction between the church and the world, between the Christian and the non-Christian, between those who turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him, and those who instead reject Him and live according to the value system of this world. The distinction is not that they're sinners and we're not is that we have gone to Christ with our sins, turned from our sins, are putting our trust in Him and following Him now according to the precepts of His kingdom, not according to the value systems of this world. That's the difference. That's the distinction. And this difference in distinction is prominent throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount. Very often Jesus will distinguish the community of His disciples and members of His kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. In some places, it's distinguishing the disciples from the Pharisees. From some, in some places, it's distinguishing the disciples from the Romans. The point is this, my people, my followers, my disciples, they will be different from this world. They will live according to a different value system. The value system is outlined in the Beatitudes, as outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. Christians, we must embrace the way the Bible speaks about our identity with relation to the world. We are different. We're different from this world. We are as different from this world as salt is from the meat into which it is rubbed. We are as different from this world as light is from darkness. Not, by the way, by being socially awkward or dressing in really dowdy clothes or something like that or living a kind of backwards kind of life socially or wearing long faces. Rather, our difference, the distinction, is to be found in our righteousness, our virtue, our obedience rendered to God in Christ. We are different by dint of our allegiance to the Lord Jesus, and that we live not now by the values of this present evil age, as Paul calls it, but according to the values of the kingdom of heaven. That is what this passage reveals. We are different by virtue of our attachment to Jesus Christ. And we should all then examine ourselves. Am I different? Am I living in this distinctive kind of way? Is my life marked by these beatitudes? Am I shining as light in the world? Brothers and sisters, we're called to live in a distinct way. We're called to live as Christians. We are this world's light. We are agents of preservation and good in this world? Are we living like it? Or do we look so much like the world? Are we living like the world? Or do we live according to the precepts and principles of Christ's kingdom? We are to be different. There is a difference between the church and the world. That's what these images reveal in this passage. And friends, we serve neither God nor ourselves nor the world by attempting to obliterate and minimize this difference. We must be different. One of the great fallacies of contemporary evangelicalism 
has been to teach that in order to reach the world, you have to become like the world. This passage obliterates that idea. I mean, this is, this is the way we're, we're coached, right? If you want to reach your culture, what you need to do is you need to, you know, turn the lights down and turn the music up. Pastor needs to wear a V-neck and skinny jeans, only put up like people on the stage who look cool and culturally kind of in vogue, and people will sell you marketing tips on how to grow your church by the same sorts of principles that grow fast food restaurants. You want to reach people, you have to become like them. Don't turn the difference up, turn it down. If you want to reach a particular demographic or culture, we need to appeal to that culture on the terms that they value. And so if it's you know, rock music that they want, give them rock music. If it's food that they want, give them lots of food. Uh, if it's certain big events and programs and cool cultural niche references, go ahead and do that. You need to watch the world's shows if you're going to reach the world. You need to listen to the world's music if you're going to reach the world. You need to adopt the world's idioms and slang if you're going to be able to preach to people today. You don't want to manifest difference. I completely and thoroughly reject that way of thinking. The world is not going to be impressed if we trump up all the ways in which we're like them in order to reach them. No, the missiological goal here, the evangelistic strategy here, is show them what a life transformed by the supernatural grace of the risen Christ looks like. Show them that. Show them a community transformed. Show them wholeness and shalom and peace and righteousness. That doesn't issue forth from yourself, but from the Savior who walked out of the tomb. He alone can change people and make them so, make them a beatitude Christian to cause them to walk in such righteousness. That, friends, will be attractive. It will be stark. It will be different. It will be whole. It will be bright. Now, some people will reject that. They'll say, these, these songs are awkward. These people are weird. I'm out. Some people will reject that. But there are plenty of people, and some of them are sitting here among us now. You came from all kinds of broken backgrounds, sinful backgrounds, and you found life in the gospel, and you saw wholeness in the church. At some point, you met a Christian. He was different. She was different. Had something that you wanted. A righteousness, a quality of purity, of light. And you said, I want to be done with my darkness. I want to have something like that. Friends, we don't do the world a service by seeking in every way to mute and diminish and play down the power of Christ's grace at work in our lives. No, rather we should praise God for it. We should point to Christ for everything that we are. And we should say to the world, you can be whole, you can be well, you can be saved. Jesus will have you and receive you. He'll save you from your sins. And the power of grace is not only to give us a covering over our sins, it's to destroy sin's power in your life. You can be righteous and whole and well. The Lord will be pleased to make you this kind of a person who lives according to the precepts of his kingdom. Our evangelism and our gospel witness will not thrive and flourish in the soil of sameness with the world. Rather, it will be precisely our brightness, our light, our salt, our righteousness, our virtue, our shining witness that will win the world. Implication number two. Implication number two. Lesson number two. This passage clearly teaches us that Christian faithfulness is not just a matter of private piety, but of public witness. This passage clearly teaches us that Christian faithfulness is not just a matter of private piety. Piety is sometimes used as a derogatory kind of term. Don't know why. But piety is a good thing, sort of like private virtue, walking with God, communing with Him, praying, reading the Word, seeking the Lord privately. But Christian faithfulness is not just a matter of private piety, it is a matter of public witness. What we learn here in this passage in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, is that the Beatitudes we've been learning about 
are not meant to be lived out in splendid isolation, but in public life, in real relationships with real people, in the community, in the public sphere. This then would be the fallacy of monasticism. The idea that you can live faithfully as a Christian by withdrawing from public life into some sort of private cloister or holy huddle, and that one can live out the Christian life in isolation from the world, that is not true. In fact, that's, that's blown out of the water by this passage. Jesus is saying our righteousness and our godliness is meant to be visible in the world, publicly. Like you'll be able to see it. It's not just had in a corner over here. So if my last point emphasized that we are not to be of the world, this point emphasizes that we nonetheless should be in the world for the world. Christians must exercise a faithful presence in the world. They must be seen. They must be felt as a real presence in this dark world. Their faithfulness and their devotion to Christ must be in some way visible and demonstrable. That's the verb that Jesus uses. They will see you. It's not like they're going to take a field trip to the monastery and see you. No, they'll see you out in the world. They'll see you in relationships. They'll see you in the workplace, in the office. They'll see you at the school, at the university. They'll see you in the neighborhood. They'll see your good works. You will be public witnesses for Christ. And this comes up repeatedly in our Lord's teaching. He speaks often of the visibility of His disciples in the world. John 13, 35, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. They're going to see it at some point, and they're going to somehow understand that that comes from an attachment to Jesus. Peter, in his epistle, in 1 Peter, to the churches of Asia Minor, talks about how to live faithfully amidst a watching world and a hostile world. He anticipates interactions with the Gentiles and with the nations and with members of the kingdoms of this world. This would be a reason to give an account and to speak and to show forth the righteousness of the Christian life. Now, Christian, cultural and social withdrawal will not work for us. And it's not an option for us. We must be in relationships with lost people. We should bring our righteousness and Christian obedience to bear on public life. We are the Lord's witnesses. We are this world's light, and we are commanded to shine. You can certainly make the decision to take a job that has you working from home. Nothing wrong with that. You could choose to homeschool your kids. Nothing wrong with that. But you may not become a private Christian. Like, I have my Christianity and my piety, and I live out the Beatitudes over here in my corner with my family, and we're going to kind of do our thing over here. Nothing necessarily wrong with the whole homesteading movement. The homesteading thing, we're going to live on the land, we're self-sufficient, we're going to live over here and have our whole thing over here. Nothing wrong if a Christian chooses to do that. But there is an instinct in the homesteading movement that's problematic. I need to isolate from society. Just be me and mine. Christians should should resist that idea. You can go live out on the land, that's fine. You could be a farmer, go for it. But you cannot withdraw from this dark world. Do you know why? Because you're this world's light. How are people going to be saved? I mean, Jesus very much attaches the outcome of evangelism on Christians being in the world. If they don't see your good works, if they don't meet Christians ever, How will they give glory to your Father who is in heaven? And so many of you would testify at some point a Christian showed up in your life. You were lost, you were living in sin, and then there was someone at the office invited you to a Bible study. You were living in all kinds of sin on campus, but then came a Christian, then came a light, and your dark world was illuminated. Then came a boy or a girl, and you wanted to date them so badly because there was something different about them. You saw something bright and whole and good and pure, and you wanted to get around them. And she said, I'm not going to date you because you're not a Christian. Not a Christian? Well, what have you become a Christian? The point is to say, people are converted in very dark places 
by the lights of the world entering into the scene and lighting up the darkness. There are spheres in which there's nothing but darkness, but then a Christian comes and things begin to change. People see something different, something bright, something attractive, and it's in those contexts that they find life. Friends, it should not be your goal to hide from your coworkers or your employees or your employers or your customers or your clients or your neighbors or your fellow classmates that you are a Christ follower. Your Christian faith at some point should be manifest. Not in an obnoxious and braggadocious way like the Pharisees who love to perform their piety in public that they might have the praise of men, but in all sincerity and in truth and in love, we don't hide our allegiance to Christ, but manifest it publicly in the way we live, in the way we speak, and in the way we conduct ourselves. To be clear, friends, I'm not saying this means you need to walk around with like a sign around your neck that says, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. You don't need to put a sign in your yard or a bumper sticker on the back of your car. No, you don't need to do anything other than just obey the Sermon on the Mount, and the distinction will become manifest. You don't need some long preachy quote or post on Facebook. You don't need to stage some big conflict or stand at work or in your classroom. Trust me, in our day and in our culture against the backdrop of so much darkness and ungodliness, if you are meek and you are merciful and you are a peacemaker and if you suffer well and if when reviled you do not revile in return and if you love your neighbor as yourself and if you do unto others what you would have them do unto you, if you are not vindictive and vengeful, if you mortify anger and lust, if you are marked by patience and contentment in the midst of life's trials, it will become clear whose disciple you are. People will see the difference. They'll see the light. And some will be drawn to it. Brother, sister, don't hide your faith. Don't hide your righteousness. Who among you lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket? Put your light on a stand that it may give light to all in the house. All right, third and final implication, and then we'll be done. Third and final lesson. And I think this is Jesus' practical point here. We followers of Christ are the only light this dark world has, and we must light up the darkness. We followers of Christ are the only light this dark world has, and we must light up the darkness. Jesus is descriptive in verses 13 through 15. He's just describing what we are. He says, you are salt. That's indicative. It's just true of you. You are salt. You are light. This is who you are. But then in verse 16, we have an imperative verb. Jesus goes from being descriptive to prescriptive. He says, therefore, let your light shine. In other words, be who you are. Act in accord with your nature. Do what light does. Shine, enlighten, witness, win souls to Christ by your goodness and your evangelism and your virtue and your love and your benevolence and your hospitality and a thousand other good works. Shine in the world. Friends, there's a responsibility this text places on us. There's an entailment here. A responsibility we have toward the world. We're to live in public righteousness and thereby witness to Christ and the power of His gospel. We're to shine in the world and work and labor for the good of those around us. We are to work to see men and women one to God through our witness. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to shine as bright lights in the world. Who will shine on this dark world if we will not? Who's going to act as salt, as a preservative to halt this world's moral decay. We must do so, and therefore we must shine. To be the light of the world, as these disciples would have appreciated, is an awesome identity. It's an awesome privilege. 
And it is an awesome responsibility. Jesus is in effect saying there are people who won't come to know the Lord if they don't have access to your light. We might think of it this way. There was a dark office. And then God sent a Christian businessman into that office. And in so doing, God sent a light into a dark place. There was a dark classroom. And God sent a Christian teacher. What was God doing in sending a Christian teacher? He was sending a light. There was a dark family. And then God saved one of the adult sons or daughters. Things began to change. God sent a light into that dark family. There was a board of directors or a board of trustees. And it was all darkness until a Christian joined the board. God sent a Christian. And in sending a Christian, He sent a light to light up the darkness. God, in sending His people into dark places, is sending a light. Do we act as lights in the world? Do we see ourselves this way? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Therefore, shine that this world might be influenced and men and women might be one to Christ. Now, you may be listening to me talk, and you may think, you know, i got a million responsibilities, a million things to do, and now you're telling me to add, you know, change the world to the list. Like, really? That's my job? That's my responsibility? No, I'm not saying that. How about we just start with a faithful Christian presence in this world? Can you fit that into your schedule? Not ask you to bring revival to America. Just be a faithful Christian wherever the Lord has you. In whatever little sphere, whatever community you're called to, can you go and be a light in a dark place? See, by this passage, I don't think Jesus is presenting a program for widespread social transformation. This is not Jesus' political philosophy. He's not giving us a manifesto for how we'll transform the culture. There's two dangers with this passage. People will often uh, uh, overread this passage or overprescribe from this passage in terms of what this should look like, or they'll overpoliticize the passage. Now, this isn't a political manifesto. Jesus is telling us to exercise a faithful Christian presence in the world, to live in righteousness and in good works, to shine as lights in the world. Now, to be clear, in a room this size, many of you may change the world. You may. Some of you will be like William Wilberforce, how he let his light shine, he and all his friends. You'd be like Hannah Moore, like Charles Spurgeon. The Lord is pleased to bring these bright and shining lights every now and again. But you know what would help the Christian witness of the church so much more than a few bright and shining lights? Like a thousand lesser lights, just shining wherever the Lord has them, that aren't embarrassed to sing the children's song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. My family, my workplace, my neighborhood, my community, wherever the Lord has called me, I want to exercise a faithful Christian presence there. Through vacation Bible schools, backyard Bible clubs, and sidewalk Sunday schools, through businessmen's Bible studies, doctors, we have lots of doctors here, doctors praying with their patients, nurses huddling up for prayer at the start of the shift, through campus groups getting creative and innovative at devising ways of bringing students together to consider Jesus, through Christians flooding the adoption agencies and the foster care programs, through Christians visiting the sick and those who are in prison. Do you know who never visits the sick and those who are in prison? Atheists. Just ask the people who work down at the prison. Who comes? It's Christians who come to shine in that darkest of places. To being a witness in your family and being a light to your sons and daughters, your father and your mother, your troubled nieces and nephews and your brothers and your sisters. Christians living out the Sermon on the Mount and shining as lights in the world in a thousand ordinary ways every day. In these ways, brothers and sisters, we will be faithful to this text and to our calling to be 
the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I think it would be a very good thing if the effect that this passage had upon us, the effect that this sermon had upon us, is that each of us would just consider, just reflect, how can I shine more as a follower of Christ in the arenas God has called me to? Wherever you are, how could I better manifest this light in the hopes that some will see it, be drawn to it, give glory to our Father who is in heaven? I encourage you, reflect and think, how can I better live out my calling to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world precisely where God has called me? Let's pray together.